You're listening to Talk to Tall. This is Talia. I have helped people in varying capacities, whether it was how to get divorced, how to come out of the closet, how to feel better in my own skin, start a new career, move across the country, move across the world, working on their addiction, how to be honest. It's very easy to lie to ourselves. I like to say the truth is erotic. Let me help you find yours. So just to introduce you, you're my good friend and um, a very important man who's really busted his ass on your own recovery podcast, which is killing it, Dopey. And um, I wanted you to come on the show for many reasons. You're an expert podcast interviewer and I am sort of a novice in this field so I wanted to although I have been interviewed by you I wanted to turn it around a little bit and ask about you because I know about you in a different context a little bit and I wanted to ask some questions to get more into the groove but will you introduce yourself like you would like to be known in another genre of podcasting? My name, I'm, I'm, I'm outed. I've been outed in the podcast world. So my name is David Mannheim. I have a podcast called Dopey. But before we say anything else, we need to congratulate Tal on 20 years this week in recovery. You should have come to my dad's to record. Could have celebrated properly. We'll celebrate on Zoom. Congratulations, Tal. Fucking insane. Congratulations. Thank you so so much. This actually, this week feels monumental. Um, First of all, I can't believe that it's been that long since I've used anything. I can't believe that. What the fuck? I couldn't go five minutes without like scratching myself, trying to get some kind of out of myself, you know? So thank you for your wishes there. That, That means a lot. You must have been like 13 when you got sober. <laughs> you know, actually what I think, and I think this when I'm looking at you, that when you get sober, you start going back in time because you look so bad when you're bloated and swollen and just jonesing. Zits coming out, sweat, oil. You start to look better, don't you think? I think we all have our, have our good times and our not, not as good times. I, I think, I think like, uh, there's like a meme, there's a meme of, it's like, uh, there's a meme of like, dude, he's like one year sober and he looks like Ryan Gosling at his prime. And then it's like 10 years sober and he looks like Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> and I feel kind of like, I feel like I'm on my way in that world. Not that I ever looked like Ryan Gosling, but I, I think it goes both ways. I think you have a, a definite edge uh, in terms of uh, how good you look and how much time you have. I don't think everybody gets to look as good as you do at 20 years. We'll oh, say that. Thank you so much. So so yes. tell me when you, the first thing I want to know is, I think I know the answer to this, but why did you start Dopey? And at one point in your sobriety, did you start Dopey? And what what was the point? What was the premise of starting that? Uh, we started it, I I started it with a friend of mine named Chris O'Connor, who I met in rehab and he had a year and a half in recovery. And I had like four months when we started 
And I think we started to get famous. We started Dopey to get famous and to have fun and have something to do. That's why we did it. And 100%. Can- like, 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 I, like I, I had done a, I had done a, a, a video, a web series. I, I was a waiter at Katz's Deli and I had a web series at Katz's Deli called The Last Jewish Waiter. And, and it got some like, you know, it was like in paper magazine and then like the eater and, and like it was USA Today wrote about it. And, and I think the Huffington Post wrote about it. And Chris liked that I got that attention. And he was like, I want to do something where we get attention. And I was like, okay. And then I had another friend who had suggested doing a podcast about drug stories he sent it to me while I, he sent me the idea while I was using. I remember he sent me a version of a podcast of famous people telling drug stories. And I was high on the Long Island Railroad going to visit my very, very young daughter. And he's like, we should start a podcast like this. And I was like, I don't know, what's a podcast, you know? And then when Chris mentioned that we should do something, my friend Brad's idea popped into my head again. And I was like, oh yeah, we should do a podcast about drug stories. And Chris was like, what's a podcast? And I was like, I think it's like a radio show. And he's like, okay, what do we do? And I was like, come to come to the Lower East Side and I'll take care of everything. And and that's how we started it. Wow. Um, and just to give the audience, which I'm sure is a lot different than your audience, uh, Dopey is one of the largest recovery podcasts and it was probably one of the first, right? I don't know. I mean... I think we are one of the largest. Uh, We broke 10 million downloads this month, uh, which I was, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, I guess when you're at 9 million, 100,000, you know, you're going to get to 10 million. So I wasn't really shocked that we got to 10 million because it's like a, a, you know, boat getting to port. It just takes a lot of time. But um, when we started, there were a couple of recovery podcasts that weren't good and we didn't want Dopey to be a recovery podcast. We wanted Dopey to be a comedy podcast about drugs. Mm-hmm. We wanted to, it was supposed to be just about drugs, addiction and dumb shit. And we did an episode where Chris told a story about assaulting a veterinarian clinic to, to steal phenobarbital. And, and by the end of the show, we needed to say we were sober because we were scared that people would get the wrong idea. So it kind of became a pseudo recovery podcast. But I said many, many, many times, like, if this is a recovery podcast, that I don't want to do it. Right. Uh, but Chris, you know, uh, wound up dying. A lot of people wound up dying. And Dopey kind of had to become a recovery podcast. Right. Yeah, that's one thing I notice when I was announcing my anniversary this week is I don't see anyone that was around when I came in there, you know, nobody. No, I haven't. I saw someone the other day with eight that had 18 years, this guy that we got sober, uh, in the basement of, you know, (laughs) um, I saw him and I haven't seen him for probably 15 years. I was so happy to see him. It was complete elation. And that's how I, that's how I feel when I see you. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Katz's because this was my impression of you when you first came in, in a non-judgmental loving way, by the way. You, I knew you worked at Katz's because you wore the t-shirt. I actually have never yeah. seen you at Katz's. What, when did you work? What was the shift? 
I, I worked like I worked I worked all day. I, I worked uh from like I mean I would get there at like 10. I would work from eleven till three or eleven till five or whatever the whatever it was, you know what I mean? Like it was I worked lunch and on Fridays I worked lunch. I Fridays I worked lunch and dinner. Saturdays I worked breakfast, lunch and dinner. And I worked fucking 12 hours. And then and then Sundays I would either work half a day on Saturday and half a day on Sunday. And then I wound up trading with somebody on Sunday so we could work a 12 hour shift and then have the next day off, which I loved. But I waited tables and cats for 11 years straight, you know, like five or six days a week. Wow. Um, You were wearing a t-shirt and you, this, for some reason, I remember you at 23. I remember the day 23. Um, your 23rd day. And I remember you wore this pair of like mustard green vans and, okay. (laughs) And I so related to you in the state that you were in. And that's what I love about when you see someone that, that used, used like you do, or you did, you really, you have like this heart connection to them instantly and especially as they start to unfold and talk and, you know, all that. So last night I actually ate at Katz's and I got there at 10. No way. Yeah. <laughs> I got I, there. You at, got there at 10 at night? Yeah. And um, they give you those little purple tickets and they tell you you got to take it to go. So I hadn't been to Katz's for so long, but I have a friend in town from um, Utah and he wanted to go there so badly. So we went to get a pastrami sandwich and two pastrami sandwiches and some club soda, $75, baby. That's all you got was two pastramis <laughs> and two seltzers. They over, that doesn't sound right. It's right. It should be oh. in, with my, with, with my cat's math, it should be 61. Do they charge 61. for pickles? You had to have gotten fries. No. No, they don't charge for pickles. No, no. It was 75 It should be $26 a sandwich. Oh no! And, it's thirty-eight and like three on the board. For a seltzer. Do they charge you for mustard? Shut the fuck up! No, it is. I swear, no, it is not thirty-eight. Well, then I want to go back there be. with you and talk to the go people. Go back? No, I had to, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going. I'm not going there. Um. Anyways, but I, I think they. I think they. I think they ripped you off. I think maybe or your friend got something else. No. Your friend must have gotten something. No, else. that's all we got. Really, is he a Mormon. No, he, Mormon? he actually grew up in, mm. in the same town I grew up in in Colorado. He's never been to New York, so we had to go okay. to Katz's, obviously. Um, so my main thought of asking you a question is um, what, and I know this is, a, this is a question I get all the time, and you probably too in your own way. I get this just in my personal life. I get it on the show, um, and it's obviously a big part of probably your drive for Dopey, but what why did you get sober? Was there something going on where you tell, tell us what happened for you that got you to the place where you realized you could not continue to use and what, what type of an addict were you? I was, uh, I was a bad addict. (laughs) I was, a I was a chronic, I, I, I mean, like when I look back at my addiction and I rarely, I mean, I tell stupid stories on Dopey all the time, whatever. But I mean, I used, I started smoking weed when I was, I mean, I think the first time I smoked weed, I was 17. I think I did acid before that. But when I got into college, I fell, I I couldn't drink. Like drinking didn't 
suit me. And I fell into weed freshman year of college. I, I felt profoundly alcoholic. Like everything you hear at a meeting, I felt like my first semester at college. Before that, I had, like I said, I had been to a school from when I was four till I graduated high school. So I was super, I think my first addiction was codependence. Like I was codependent on my friends. They made me feel safe. They made me feel like that's who I was. I felt comfortable in my skin because I was around the same people from age four to age 17. So when I was in college, I felt alone. You know, I, the first time I felt really alone is I was a waiter at a summer camp and I had no friends. And the last night of the year, the kitchen staff were all European through a party. And I was probably 15 and I drank probably 20 screwdrivers and I blacked out and I was vomiting and, and it was like, I, I could have died. Somebody had to hold me up vomiting the whole night. And I knew that I had an, an uh, the allergy to alcohol, but I think I had an actual, like, if I drink, I get sick. I could not drink. Like, I didn't like how it felt. I felt like shit. So when I found weed, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I think I smoked pot every day from, you know, 17, 18 till I was 41 every day, like religiously all day. I was a stoner, stoner, stoner. And then I did psychedelics and then I became a TV producer or I became a production assistant and like people around me were doing Coke uh, and I would do Coke, but it never really jived with my, uh, my nervous system. Like, I think I was so neurotic and high strung that Coke was very uncomfortable for me, but like, that's why I loved weed. And then around the same time I tried heroin once and I didn't like it. Like I wound up throwing up. I wound up hooking up with somebody that I didn't really want to hook up with. It wasn't like an exciting, good thing. I was like, what the fuck is this? And then was that, was that I snorting, snorting or shooting or, yeah. No, I it was snorting. Yeah. Totally snorting. Right. Um and 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 I never thought I never thought I would become an IV heroin addict. Uh I remember when I was a kid I don't I don't even know why I have this memory. I was like a babysitter in my in the buildings. I grew up in public housing and I and I babysat this guy's house and I watched like an old biopic about the Beach Boys. And I think someone I think like Dennis Wilson shot dope one time and I remember feeling it in my arms and I was like, oh, like I didn't like the idea of that. Wow. But then I wound up, I wound up doing heroin and I snorted heroin for years. I snorted heroin for years. I remember, I remember making the decision, like I can afford to do this. Like I remember in the beginning I was scared and then I was like, but heroin was the ultimate medication for my neurosis. Heroin made me feel like it's that all I ever wanted was to be somebody that says, I don't give a fuck and mean it. And, and the, and I never got there, but the closest I ever was, was on heroin. And then I got a good job producing TV and being a weird TV host. And uh, instantly I decided I could afford to do heroin every day. And I made a decision to do heroin every day. And then I went, I got fired pretty quickly and um, I went to a, a 28 day program and I was with this like really funny heroin addict from Long Island and we left together and he was like, you need to shoot up. And after that I shot up and I did heroin from, you know, age 20, 
23 or 24 till probably 35 like every day you know like like super horrible heroin addict methadone addict and then 35 to 41 i kind of got off heroin just did and i i also was a terrible benzo addict like benzos i mean i wouldn't say weed heroin or benzos like i like them all the same because they all made me feel calm they all made me feel relaxed and i was such a bad benzo addict that i would i would i would have seizures i had you know maybe 10 grand mal seizures where i'd have to be hospitalized for for the seizures crazy it's crazy you know and and i and i i only overdosed one time i think and some woman you know a woman who had the first woman who ever shot me up actually it wasn't that guy in rehab I was, I met a woman who who shot me up one time and I overdosed and she like, she was a burly lady and she dragged me into the bath and like beat the shit out of me and fucking put the cold water. But yeah, that's the kind of drug addict I was. I did drugs hardcore uh, until I was 35 and then casually until I was 41. And I got sober because I had a kid and I was just like, I couldn't really be in my kid's life without my father. Uh, being in my life and that felt shitty and uh, lots of people say they got sober for their kid but I got sober because I couldn't handle that shitty feeling right and was your father in your life when you were a junkie or was he telling you yeah 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 he was he was they were they were in my life but my parents they were you know like when I got really bad I moved to California and my mother was a real like pragmatic woman. And she, she did some research and she found something called families anonymous and families anonymous basically says you need to live your own life. You know, my parents were not like totally like they were upset, but they, they had found like they became like a big square dancing couple. They like did <laughs> shit. And I Weird was for out Jews. of their life. Weird for Jews to be square dancers. Yeah, they. Well, it wasn't. It was. It was gay square dancing. <laughs> they joined a group called the the Times Squares, and they would go gay square dancing every week. It was like, I don't know. It, it, like they part were trying of me to cope to with your addiction. Family. It was not a. It was a traditionally middle class Jewish home, but it was not traditional Jewish uh, family dynamics. We'll say. Did you go? To, did you go to shul? Not often, right. just her high holidays, and and I I could barely read Hebrew, and I was I was I was a a, a blight on my family. Right. Um. Now, and the other question I never ask you: uh, You have a gorgeous wife, and you have a beautiful family. How the hell did you get a relationship while you were fucked up? How did you get someone so amazing? There's a line in the big book that says, uh, "As alcoholics, we tend to pick the best women." Do you think that's that's exact? that's interesting? Yeah. I, I I you know like I met her when I was 23, right? I had a friend who she went to school with and she came to my apartment at 23 and we hooked up and I was like, "Holy shit, she's really beautiful." Like she was like I was like, "Wow." And um I never saw her again. Kind of forgot about it to be honest with you. I like never wow. saw her again, never really thought about it. It was like I was high. It was like a dream kind of thing. Wow. And then after after my mother died, 
I think my friend had mentioned she was here and I was like, Oh shit, you got to hook me up with her. Um, and we went out one night. He wouldn't, he wouldn't hook me up with her until my mom had died. And I think he felt sorry for me. Uh, so he was like, okay, I'll hook you up with her. And like, we went out, we all did Coke the first night we went out and, uh, I made her take me home with her. Right. Right. I, I like, and I, I also like, I made her take me home with her. She had like, I think she had prescription benzos. And I was like, I made her like promise me benzos. Like, and then I was like, you're my girlfriend now. I was crazy. I, I don't know how I pulled it off to be, to answer your question. I have no idea. It was just like, and I maybe like, she's, she's a social worker. Like maybe she liked my scumbaggery of the time. Maybe <laughs> she, had, she had low self-esteem in some weird way. But uh, yeah, it was, it's wild. I don't know. It's like, it's hard to explain it. She's very beautiful. And like, I was not, you know. You, you're very handsome. But she but I always think, you know, it's kind of amazing. I have envy over that because I could not keep a relationship. I could not keep my shoes on, let alone, you know, being able to be connected to someone that feels speaking of codependency, that feels so much safer in my own addiction if I have a partner because I'm not alone. Yeah, like I had relationships in my addiction that didn't last. And 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 me and Linda, like we got together and I was using and she got pregnant really fast. You know, she got pregnant. She was like, she was, she was like, I can't get pregnant. I I I spent my whole life never <laughs> coming inside anyone ever, like terrified of right. somebody getting pregnant. And she was like, I can't get pregnant. And I don't know why. I believe that. And and unfortunately for her, she gets impregnated by a, a total heroin addict. <laughs> After she can't get pregnant, she gets, you know, impregnated by a heroin addict. And then she finds out, like, basically I tried to stop using when she got pregnant. And, um, and I think I stopped using, I, I wasn't using heroin, but my friend, after she got pregnant, my, my friend, I don't know how or why he did this, he came to visit us and he, and he was somebody I always used with and he brought heroin. And, uh, and I just started, I think the pregnancy was very intense. I hadn't found recovery and I just started like chipping and I was fucking totally strung out. And she, she didn't know. She found out after our daughter was, I want to say she was five months old and, and Linda would always watch the bachelorette and uh, eat ice cream and then go to bed. So like, and I would always sit in the other room and watch TV and shoot, <laughs> shoot heroin. And, um, and she was watching the bachelorette and I figured it was safe to shoot heroin. And, um, she went to say goodnight to me, which I don't think she did that often. I was so fucked up. I think she was like, how am I going to endure this? I have this infant. Yeah. I need to try to make this work. And right. then she came into the room I was in. I had a needle in my lap and I figured she saw it but she didn't see it. And then I told her and then she was like, she called her dad and her dad was like a, a bodybuilding ex Navy boxer librarian. And he, and he said, he said to her, tell him to leave or I'm going to come and kick the shit out of him. Wow. And I left. Where'd and, you go? You know, I left. I Where'd went to go? my father. Oh. I went to my dad's, I went to my dad's house and, uh, and I, and I, I shot dope in my dad's house that night. And then Linda was done with me and, and like she, she was not interested in getting back 
together with me for five years. So, you know, we were not together. We were not together for five years. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. 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 So basically you getting clean saved your marriage and also brought baby number two. Yeah. And we never got married though. That's the other thing. We never got married. Uh, I didn't, you know, getting clean, you know what it was, I was obsessed with her. I was obsessed with Linda and I was obsessed with our first daughter and our family. I was like, I cannot blow this. And then when I blew it, I was so obsessed with it. And I went to a 12 step. I, I had been to 12 step, but I hadn't taken it seriously. And I didn't realize the level of my obsession with my family. And I, when I went to 12 step, it was because I needed the obsession to be lifted. Like I really did. And, and, and then I said to her, and we were like in and out with each other. Like we would hook up, we would, we would not hook up. We would, she would date. I would date. Like it was like, we were not together. And eventually it was within the first, you know, six months of me getting sober, sober. I said, listen, we have to stop. I was like, I have to stop doing this. I need to move on. I can't have one foot in. I'm too crazy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I got really into the program and then she wanted to get back together with me. Like within, within like a month of me telling her that she wanted to get back together with me. And I, and I was like, all right, let's do it. Because I, I just knew that I needed, I needed to value the, really, to be honest with you, I knew that if I wasn't with her, I would still be with her and somebody else. And that would, was too much for my brain. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to make this work. And, and, and we did. That's great. I actually heard that the other day that love is what keeps you sober. And if whether it's self-love or the love of someone or loving you enough to say, yeah, I can't be with you if you're like this, love really is, is basically what every junkie, alcoholic, addicted, codependent needs, you know? Yeah, 100%. But I really think the thing, I don't know, the most valuable thing that I've taken away from my recovery, I think is is willingness. It's making a decision. Because like my relationship isn't always good. My recovery isn't always good. My My diet isn't always good. My fitness isn't always good. My life isn't always good. But I know that I can always make a decision to recommit, to, to, to stay, to not burn it down, to not blow it up, to not deviate from it. And it's that decision that keeps it okay. It's like, I remember, I don't know why it was so profound to me. There was this documentary about George Harrison called Living in the Material World that Martin Scorsese made. And they interviewed George's wife, this woman, Olivia. And, um, and, and I think Martin Scorsese asks her, he's like, he's like, well, George is such a womanizer. How did you make it work? And right. she's like, because I didn't leave. You know, she's like, I didn't leave. Meaning like I accepted him and I was going to stay with him. I was not going to let my relationship end. And she had to deal with him being, you know, a womanizer. You know, he never was like, right. like, like, and I'm not a womanizer. I'm just saying like, you make a decision. And when I heard her say that, it's like, there was just something profound about it. Like my relationship isn't always perfect. My life isn't always perfect, but as long as I stick with it, I know it can get 
good again. Yeah, for sure. And also, we just have no idea what's happening. We have no idea how long this life is. And I love that that thing, that question. The, the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and then the day you find out why. Well, that's interesting. Like, do you, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Like, I don't know. Like, I haven't hit that day yet. <laughs> yeah. I haven't had that day where I found out why. Yeah. Um, but it's good. And I mean, for me, it's all about, is it good enough? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm fucking good enough. Like it's not perfect. Sometimes it's better than others, but it's, it's good enough. Like, I don't need that answer of why. Do you know why? Um, I know that I'm supposed to be sober, just sort of the way I hit bottom. And I know I'm supposed to talk to other people who are struggling, suffering, or in recovery, but everything else, no, I have no idea. <laughs> right, right. And like, I just know that if I stop doing this, everything goes away. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I don't want that. And especially when you were describing, you know, when she said, I can't, you know, you got to go, you got to leave, I can't be with you. And you said you became so obsessed with your family. I mean, imagine that hurt if you didn't have them and you were out there as a junkie shooting up right now and you couldn't speak to your daughter. You couldn't speak to Linda. You were just oscillating in space. I know what it feels like, you know, it feels horrible. Like to be in that situation is just, it was, it was the most empty and, uh, and longing, you know, it was just this longing. And it's funny though. I have a friend, I was talking to a friend the other day who, who had a, suffered a breakup. Oh no, he had suffered a breakup, but he had gotten back together with his wife. And he was like, if we break up, it'll be okay. And, and it's like, I think that's really the thing to hang everything on. Yeah. Which is that, and I mean, for me, it's like, as long as I'm not using, everything is okay. There, there's so much opportunity and, and fun to be had. I personally, like, I love my family. I love these kids. I love Linda. I love, I love my family unit. But if, if Linda was like, I fell in love with somebody else, uh, I'm making a go of it. I, I would figure out a way to be okay. It's not, everything is not this. Uh, I, I love being a part of it, but I know that it's, it's my recovery that allows me to be okay, no matter what happens. And we're also all going to fucking die. You know, yeah. we're all, we're, no one's going to live forever here. Yeah. I know it's, it's now I've taken a depressing turn on talk to talk. Yeah. I apologize, but it's just, it's, it's just the truth. It's reality. I mean, it's reality. And it's it's also really, if you think statistically, the people that can get sober, it used to be in 2000, I think 12, it was one in 15 people can get to 10 years of sobriety. Mm. And that's just an alcoholic. I mean, junkies and opiates and meth heads, uh, you know, have way less of a chance. And you probably know statistically some of the synthetic crap that's coming through. I mean, the chances of getting sober and actually coming into yourself where you can be willing is rare. It's odd. And, um, I've, yeah, no, I don't know the statistics. I just know that every time I went to treatment, which was a lot, 
they would be like, only one of you, only one of you is going to get sober. But then I figure every time I go there that the odds change because I've come back. Right. I feel like the odds get better if you don't, if you don't die. And I, I just celebrated eight years uh, this month. And like, I want to get to 10, you know what I mean? Like I don't, I, and, and all you, all we can do is to keep going. You know yeah. what I mean? If, if, if we keep going, we might get to where we want to go. And if we stop going, we won't. Right. Right. And does Linda under, I mean, you are very invested in your podcast. I know how much it means to you. And let's just say this, it's taken you years of hard work, um, to get to where yeah, you I'm are sick. with it. I'm fucking total obsession, total sick, total illness, total mental illness around the podcast. hundred percent. In the, in the form she know? of, yeah, she knows. <laughs> In the form of what do you mean by obsession? You want it to succeed so much. You want it to elevate you to make money. What What is the, could it just be something that you love that you're so into or you're, why do you say obsession? I think it's all of those things. I think it's, 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 it's self image. It's career aspirational. It's, I mean, in a lot, it's an alter ego. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I, I swear to God, I go to bed at night thinking of it and I wake up in the morning thinking of it. And, and, and I've done that every day for, you know, a long time, you know? And, and I mean, I, I grew up wanting to have a talk show. Like that's what I wanted to do. And now I'm doing it. And I don't know that it's actually, sickness. I mean, like this week we went to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and that definitely came first. You know, my family came first. Um, the podcast is income. It's a hobby. It's career. Uh, I love everything about it. I love the art. I love the community. I love the interviews. I love the money. I love the pseudo fame. I've gotten recognized three times now. I got recognized once on, on 18th street and, and sixth Avenue. And it was this dude who was like very grateful for my, for dopey. And that was like incredible. Then, uh, Oh my God, are you ready for this story? Yeah. I'm with my older daughter. We're in Vermont. We're in Burlington. No, we're in Manchester, Vermont. And there was like, we're going to the outlets in Manchester, Vermont. And we went to the flannel outlet, whatever that is. The Manchester flannel, Vermont flannel company or something. We walk up the stairs and a, there's a young woman in there and she goes, oh my God, are you Dave from Dopey? And wow. it was like, you know, and my daughter was like, ah. And then we went to like Ralph Lauren and she's like, she's like, you think someone's going to know you here? And I was like, no. <laughs> Only where they wear log then, cabin right, Timberlands. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then, uh, and then, uh, and then I took my younger daughter to a playground uh, where we live in, in Long Island and someone, a young woman, a lot of young lesbians love Dopey. Uh, a young woman come up, comes up to me and she goes, uh, are you Dave from Dopey? And like, yeah. You know, and I felt, and my younger daughter's like, daddy, you're famous. And I was like, yeah, you know, like I'm kind of famous. And then I sat down like, and, and, and my younger daughter went off and played and somebody else comes up to me and she goes, are you, is your name David? And I was like, yeah. And she's, and I was waiting for her to say, she, you know, I saved her life and this and that. And she's like, did you drop a check in the playground? <laughs> <laughs> and I dropped a check. <laughs> and she found the check. I dropped a blank check on the ground in the playground. And it was just like, that's one of those great, like, 
humility moments. But I mean, like, obviously I'm not very famous. I, I, I go to meetings all the time. No one knows who I am at all. Um, but I, I, I listen, it's, it's like when you find something that you love to do, yeah. uh, you do it, you know, and I love to do this. So I do it. Yeah. Well, um, you know what I really like about you is you have a lot of humility because you interview some very big celebrities and they come and they are willing to open up, talk to you, tell their gritty stories and that and somebody who's able to sort of be that channel and be the person that's interviewing, you know, this, this whole notion we have as people of what celebrity means. A lot of people really get into that, but you're so humble. You see them as people and you don't really care if they're famous or not. I mean, I'm sure it's always nice to interview a famous person talking about recovery. And part of that is just because people that are just average hear someone famous that's getting sober and struggling with all the shit that we've struggled with it makes you feel like you're like, Oh, it, it doesn't have to be, uh, this way because I'm this, or I came from here. It could be anyone, which we can all see the Ralph Lauren store. I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty of little, uh, you know, people wearing that couture double RL that have been shooting heroin in the back office, you know? Definitely. And I think like, I am like, I fetishize fame and I fetishize famous people. And, uh, I love the idea of being famous, but I think, I think it's just because I grew up with that aspiration. You know what I mean? Like watching behind the music or like watching TV shows. It's not like, I don't feel like famous people are in any way, shape or form better than non-famous people. I feel like it's the same, you know, we're all, we're just people, but I do really like get a kick. I like get a kick out of, famous people coming on the show because I feel like it elevates the show. And I, I, I don't, I, I think my humility is, is, you know, like in some ways it's a character defect because I, I constantly tend to put myself down because I don't want to be arrogant. And, and I'm total just addict city, like the piece of shit in the center of the universe kind of thing where like, I'm both. I feel really good about myself. And sometimes I don't feel really good about myself, but I, I love the, I like the famous people because it's funny. It makes me feel good about myself. And I also like to impress people. And I'm like, yeah, we're, I'm better than you because I had so-and-so on my podcast, but it's not re I don't really think it. it's more like you think this is how fucked up I am. I'm like, you think you're better than me, but I have this, you know what I mean? And it's like, it's, there's nothing, there's nothing there. Yeah. You know, it's just like, I want Dopey to be a great podcast. So, and I know that if Jamie Lee Curtis comes on Dopey, it makes Dopey appear to be better. Mm -hmm. So I like it for that. Yeah. And it makes me appear to be better because I make Dopey. Right. You know, I'm sure that there's a lot of fucked up things in there about me. You know what I mean? I feel it, right? What do you think, Tal? What do you think that exposes about me? Well, I, I mean, just knowing your personality, there are people that are sort of star fuckers and they are constantly name dropping and saying, oh, you know, just random people that say, oh, on this street, so-and-so lives. And one time he looked at me and right, 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 right. you don't have yeah. that vibe going. What I think no. about you is you have a curiosity for humanity and if they do happen to be famous obviously you're going to get more people interested because we live in a culture now right that if you hear jamie lee curtis 
is going to come on your show and talk about her recovery, holy fuck, that's attention for you and the right. show. And that's the whole premise of wanting to do something where you reach people. So I think it's it's going hand in hand with your mission. Um, can you tell us the the we're almost out of time, but can you tell us the top five interviews that you've had on Dopey and why it doesn't have to be someone famous? Just what are your five at my, the moment? Okay. My the one that I always say is my favorite, and I think it is still. You know how you tell a story and it sort of becomes true and you don't know if it's the real story or not. Um, the guy that hooked me up with Linda, right? Um, the guy that hooked me up with Linda was a guy that I got totally addicted to drugs with. His name was Todd. And, and, and one of the biggest things about Dopey was like the comedy and me and Todd, like always got into these fucked up situations. So one time me and Chris started doing the show and Todd called me and I answered the phone, but I didn't tell him he was on the show. And he had like just gotten arrested and like all these things had happened that were perfect for the show. And that's always my favorite moment on the show because it's exactly the way I wanted the show to be. And he died. He di he wound up dying right before Chris. He died six weeks before Chris, um, which really fucked me up. So that was my definitely my favorite one. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, I'd put in the top five because she's Jamie Lee Curtis. And it, well, it, was, it was not the best interview, but she cried, which was nice on the show and she's Jamie Lee Curtis. So that was good. Uh, Mark Marin, like it was just like a, a, a weird God shot kind of thing. Like I thought that Chris had died. I thought the show was going to end and I'm at Katz's and I'm waiting tables and I was going to have this writer, David chef who wrote that book, beautiful boy on dopey. Right. And he had just put out the movie, beautiful boy. And, um, and I'm, I'm like, I remember I was standing right by the matzo ball soup and I get an email <laughs> from him. No, I got an email from fucking David Chef canceling and being like, I'm doing too much press. I'll come on Dopey in six months. And it's like, motherfucker, I don't care about you in six months. Your movie's out now. It makes me feel like, makes Dopey seem important. And that's the thing about celebrities. It makes Dopey seem important. Yeah. So I got really upset. I like grabbed the maitre d's vape, nicotine vape. And I went out on the corner of Houston and Ludlow and I was vaping and uh, thinking like, what the fuck am I going to do about the show? And Mark Marin comes walking down the street in that moment. Like that was like the closest thing to a quote unquote God shot. I, I think I ever had. And then I was like, dude, uh, I do this podcast where you, you come on. And he had known about it because I used to harass him on Twitter. And the next morning he came to Katz's. I bought him breakfast and he came on the show and he was really, really good. So that was, I'd say, number three. Uh, Michael Imperioli, right? Nice. You know, he played Christopher. He played Christopher on The Sopranos. He came to my dad's house. Uh, I mean, a lot of famous people came to my dad's house. But, but Michael Imperioli came to my dad's house. He wouldn't talk about drugs at all. But he did reenact the scene from The Sopranos with me where uh, he was, uh, I played Christopher and he played a junkie in a car, which I loved. That was like a big highlight. And then like, what's number five? Uh, you, Tal. We, we did three, three episodes and uh, there were so many diehard Dopey fans who like lived for your episode. So I'm going to give you the number five spot. Wow, thank you. That's so sweet. That's kind. You know, Dopey is important. 
I just want you to know it's really important to people. And I saw someone wearing dopey socks, like Union Station. They were wearing the big, big bird ones. No way. Yeah, it, Union Square. It was probably you. Was it you? Did you see yourself in a mirror? <laughs> oh, there's my there's my reflection, Big Bird. No, yeah, I actually yeah. saw that walking away from me, and then I started emailing you because several people that I know that are not in recovery have been asking me for dopey stuff since the last uh, taping we did. So I'm gonna send some cashola to the people I think you said in Ohio who make them, but. Thank you so much for coming on Talk to Tall. I'm so happy that you're sober. Congratulations. What what day was your sobriety on August? I always said it was August the 13th because I remember it was a Friday. I'm not. It was either the the 12th, the 13th, or something in there. I, yeah. I wasn't sure. Happy anniversary. Happy, I celebrate the 13th. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary to you, Tall. And it's a pleasure. And uh, if you ever need anything, you know where to find me. And same. And come back anytime. Right on. All right, I will cool. come back whenever you want me to. Okay, cool. Thanks so much, David. Thank you for listening to Talk Too Tall. If you are feeling like you need help to find your truth, please shoot us an email with your question to talktotalia at gmail.com. It's T-A-L-K, the number two, T-A-L-L-I-A at gmail.com. You'll never know your truth unless you ask for it.